Good morning, beloved. It's good to see you this morning, or sort of see you, be on the screen, uh, looking at the screen, looking at you, looking at me. Uh, we, we, we're looking forward to the day when we don't have a screen between us, and we can actually be together as God's people. Well, it's time to turn to God's Word, so let's have a word of prayer. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to hear your word. We pray that they would be convicting words, healing words, true words through and through. And we pray that they would be words that direct us in our service to you, in our relationship with you, and words that, Lord, um, give us an identity and a hope. Bless us this morning as we come to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week, beloved, we continued our series that we have called Embodied. Uh, this series is meant to be a reflection on what it means theologically to be embodied beings and how the body itself is a theological sign pointing us to the realities of the gospel and the, the hope of eternal life. The last week in the series, we came to the topic of our bodies and sexual immorality. We were in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 and 20, and there we learned three sort of facts, three theological truths about the body that are meant to make sexual immorality unthinkable to the Christian. Number one, that our bodies are meant for God and God is meant for our bodies. Number two, that our bodies, our physical bodies, are joined with Christ and become parts or members of his body. And then number three, our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. And it's these truths about our bodies belonging to God, being united with Christ, and lived in by the Holy Spirit that are meant to make us sort of step back and go, wait a minute, what in the world am I thinking or doing when it comes to sexual immorality? To be repulsed by it, um, to find it unthinkable. Well, not only are we supposed to find the sexual immorality unthinkable, Paul's argument in a couple of verses before that, verses 9 to 11 of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, which will be our text this morning, Paul's argument there tells us that uh, sexual immorality is not just unthinkable, it's actually incompatible with our identities in Christ. It's incompatible with who we are. And it's knowing who we are in Christ and knowing who we are as citizens of his kingdom, that identity, that, that sort of leads us to live it in a way that is itself um, incompatible, unfitting for the old life of sin. So here's the thing. Recovering from sexual sin or from suffering sexual mistreatment at the hands of others both of those things require us to get our identities correct in order to deal with the ways in which sexual sin distort us. And that's why I want to address for a little bit this morning how, how a proper understanding of our identity helps us in our fight against and our recovery from sexual sin or suffering from sexual mistreatment. And to do that, we want to look at 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 to 11. Look there with me. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. As we look at these three verses, I want us to sort of organize our time uh, considering two things, who we were and who we now are. Who we were, in verses 9 and 10, and who we now are in verse 11. Who were we? Well, real quickly, uh, three things sum up who we were before we were Christians. 
Number one, we were unrighteous people. Look at verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? The term unrighteous is a general phrase that refers to people who do not live by God's standard, do not live by God's expectations. You can translate the word as wrongdoers. You can translate it as the wicked. So wrongdoers go the wrong way and do the wrong things. And, And that's who we were. We were sinners, to use another word. Isaiah 53 verse 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. This is who we were. People going about our own way, doing our own thing, making a claim to this life as if we had no responsibility to God. We were unrighteous for doing so. There's a second thing here. We were outside the kingdom of God. You see, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is really, in one sense, the central idea of the entire Bible. The Old Testament is looking forward to the coming of this promised kingdom. And when the New Testament begins, the first message that's preached in the pages of the New Testament is, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's come. It's among you. And so entering the kingdom of God is actually the most important thing to do according to the Bible. Not missing the kingdom, but having your part in it uh, is, is like vitally important. Without that, everything else is nothing. And the flip side is true. To miss the kingdom of God, to be locked outside of it, is the worst thing that could happen. The text says here that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. To inherit something means to, to receive that thing as your own property, as a consequence of someone else dying and giving it to you. For example, if grandparents were to pass, they may leave a, a last will and testament. And in that will, they might divide their possessions among their children and their grandchildren, saying who gets what and so on. The question becomes, who has died and what have they left? Well, the answer is Jesus Christ has died on the cross. And through his death, the Lord wills or leaves not just a house or a home or some other kind of material property, but he leaves an entire kingdom, the, the kingdom of God. He leaves it to everyone who believes in him. So every living person can become an inheritor, a beneficiary of the kingdom of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But, just as with human wills, there's some people who are not written into the will, who do not inherit the kingdom. And those are the people who are unrighteous, who do not believe in Christ, and they are left outside the kingdom. And Christian, that was us. That's who we were. The third thing about who we were, we were self-deceived practitioners of sin. We were self-deceived practitioners of sin. Now notice now, it wasn't that we committed a sin, a sort of individual act of indiscretion. No, we were committed to a lifestyle of sin. Sin was our habit. Sinner sinner was our identity. That's why Paul lists the sins in verses 9 to 10. When he does so, he doesn't use the verb form. He uses the noun form. Because that's who we were. We had become the sins themselves. So the Bible says, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Why does the Bible begin with, do not be deceived? I think David Powelson uh, helps us to understand why when he writes this, a configuration of desires, fears, and false beliefs mislead us and animate us. We are too plausible to ourselves. 
willingly deceiving ourselves, suppressing the light of conscience, rationalizing what is wrong so that it seems like the most natural thing in the world. The lifestyle that unfolds can become habitual and assumed. That's the problem with self-deception. It takes things that are clearly wrong, tries to reconfigure, redefine, reposition them as if they are natural and right and good, and before long then, they end in a habit, a pattern that takes us hostage and that in fact harms us. Self-deception is a real spiritual danger, beloved. But it is kindness now. God put verses 9 and 10 in the Bible so that we would not deceive ourselves. For the purpose of our series uh, on embodiment, the, the sins I want to just highlight for us real quickly are those sins of the body, those sins against the body, uh, which we considered last week, uh, sins of sexual immorality. You see what Paul lists there. He refers to the sexually immoral, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality. Now, he's listing those things as um, things that are or, or people who are part of the former life, the old way of life. And his point here is we cannot, if that's us, inherit the kingdom of God that way. Why? Well, the pattern of such a life is entirely contrary to the pattern that God calls us to in his kingdom. To continue in unrighteousness is to be unfit for heaven and to be unfit for our holy God and King. It is to not inherit the kingdom of God. So, so beloved, the, the cost of these sins, of sexual sin and all the other kinds of sins that are listed there, the cost of these sins are far too high to continue in self-deception. So let me ask you just a couple of questions for reflection. Number one, do you still like who you were? Are you still kind of infatuated with, admiring of your life if the things in verses 9 and 10 describe your life? Number two, are you protecting the old self-image? Are you someone that when your sins are pointed out, even if they were sins years ago, are you someone who gets defensive about that and then begins to sort of explain and justify and rationalize that, that old lifestyle? Are you protecting those things? Number three, maybe more to the point, do you still desire the old pattern of life, sexual morality? Adultery, fornication, pornography, homosexuality, lesbianism. Is sexual sin an appetite for you, a desire for you that, that you don't just sort of feel from time to time, but you actually coddle and curate and nurture? If you answer yes to those questions, then you may either be deceiving yourself right now about those things or about your relationship to God or, or you may not be a Christian. If verses 9 and 10 are describing the old pattern of life and yet that's the pattern of life that you desire, that you protect, and that you rationalize, you may still be in the old pattern of life. And, and, and God would not have you deceive yourself. He'd have you honestly face, admit, and turn away from what displeases him, what will cost you the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you're watching with us this morning and you are not a Christian, I want you to understand that to be outside the kingdom of God is to be destined for hell. That's the result. And, and if these things describe your life, then, then you need to know that you're putting your soul in danger of God's eternal judgment. And for what? These very momentary and unsatisfying evil deeds? Is your soul worth another sexual encounter? 
Think soberly about that. Would a few minutes of carnal pleasure really be worth an eternity of God's righteous judgment? No, if, you, if, you, if you're being sober-minded and not self-deceived, you realize then that you need to change. This change is vital. One scholar puts it this way, everything which persistently opposes what it is to be Christ-like must undergo change if those who practice such things wish to call themselves Christians and to look forward to resurrection with Christ or the kingdom of God. In other words, beloved, we need to be changed if we're going to go to heaven. We can't live the old life and at the same time enter the new life. Which brings us to the second thing we want to see in verse 11. We want to consider who we are because we have, if we are Christians, in fact been changed radically, fundamentally. And it's that change and understanding that change which helps us to begin to uh, recover from and to heal from uh, the, the kinds of patterns of sinful brokenness that defined our lives before we met Jesus. So now, notice the contrast that begins in verse 11. He's describing who we are now. Paul says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now, I want to unpack this in terms of our Christian identity, who we have become now. What Paul is really describing in verse 11 is the Christian doctrine of conversion of the change that has happened uh, to us, the, the new birth, the being born again. And we're going to unpack that, but before we do that, we, we need to have a little bit of a grammar lesson here. We need to go to English class so that we don't misunderstand what these verses are telling us. There are three things here uh, from a sort of grammar perspective um, that we need to know in order to understand this text well. Number one, um, these, this sentence, these couple of sentences are facts, not commands. They are facts, not commands. They are indicatives, not imperatives. So in other words, we're not told, we're not being told to become something. That would be a command. Be this, do that. No, what we're being told is that we are something. That there are facts here that follow, that define our lives. So if we read the sentences like, like they're commands, then we're going to misunderstand. And in fact, we're going to hurt our recovery from sexual sin and sexual suffering. We, we are already something. We don't have to strive to be these things. We don't have to work for them. Beloved, this is who you are if you are in Christ. And you should write this down. This is who I am. Here's a second sort of grammar lesson. The, the verbs are passive. The verbs are passive. That means that we are not the ones doing the action. The action is being done to us and uh, for us. God, God gives these things um, to us. God's the one who did them to us. So these things are received, not achieved. The identity that we're about to consider is given, not earned. Uh, sometimes when I drive uh, to meet people for uh, lunch or dinner or something, uh, on 8th Street, I get off there on the 6th Street exit and you swing through the Marine barracks and sometimes the Marines are outside and they got on their dress blues, those beautiful um, blue uniforms and uh, the bus is out there. Maybe it's the Marine Corps band or something going, getting ready to go somewhere to play. And, you know, they've got that beautiful bus with the Marine painted on the side in the dress blues. And I don't know if you've ever noticed the Marine slogan, earned, not given. Earned, not given. I mean, if I was telling you the truth, um, the Marine Corps failed to recruit me when they had that commercial that says we do more before 6 a.m. than most people do all day. <laughs> I ain't trying to do that much before 6 o'clock in the morning. But the mentality of the Marine is that to, to dress in those blues, to wear the Marine insignia, to represent the country in that uniform, you got to earn that. That's not just given to you. That ain't no favor. You got to earn that. And in fact, when we think about most of our professions, that's the mentality of most of our professions. If you're an attorney, you had to earn that. Several years of schooling and then passing uh, the bar exam. 
If you're a medical doctor, same thing. You had to go several years of schooling and, and then sort of pass the boards. If you're a school teacher, um, similar thing, education plus um, certification. Uh, if you're an HVAC technician, you had to go through training courses and then be certified. If you're a coder, um, you had to take certain classes to become proficient in coding in certain languages. Most of the world is organized that way. Whatever you get is earned, not given. But that's not the logic of the gospel. The logic of the gospel is exactly the opposite. That everything that God is and everything that God has and everything that's available in God's kingdom, you can't earn it. God gives it to us. And everything that we become in Christ, our entire identity is not a matter of our effort. It's a matter of God's grace, God's kindness in giving us all these things. Now, this is vitally important, beloved, for dealing with sexual sin and dealing with the guilt and shame of sexual sin. When, when guilt comes whispering, you're not worthy. You, you, you're dirty. You're not holy. You're not righteous. If you're thinking, I must earn it because it's not going to be given to me, then you're going to sort of fall back onto your own strength. You're going to fall back onto technique, and you're going to try and achieve something that you cannot achieve. This is why we are so often frustrated and disgusted when we keep falling or slipping or struggling with the same or similar sins. We're trusting technique and strength. We're trying to earn it when in the gospel it's actually given. So when guilt and shame whisper, you're not clean, you're dirty, you quietly respond, in myself, I am not clean. But in Christ, I am. I am worthy, I am holy, I am washed, I am, I am clean because God has done this to me and for me. I've been passive, God is the actor in the gospel. So we get this, not by virtue of our effort, but by the work of Christ and the Holy Spirit. Last, last grammar lesson this morning. Number three, the verbs are past tense. Verbs are past tense. Notice there, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. These are actions done fully and completely in the past. They are not incomplete actions that have to be finished. They are not partial actions or achievements that need to be repeated from time to time. No, this is the gospel. The gospel says it is finished. Consider, for example, Hebrews 7, verses 26 and 27. The Bible says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests of the Old Testament, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. And the writer of Hebrews just can't leave that truth. So two chapters later, Hebrews 9, verses 24 and 26, the Bible says this. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself, notice, repeatedly as the high priest into the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have, have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. Now notice, but as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The work of our salvation has been accomplished, beloved, once and for all by Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What we're about to sort of learn about ourselves are completed actions. And these actions, completed in the past, 
have enduring and continuing consequence and significance for us and our identity. These have an ongoing, every moment effect on our lives. We are about to learn every moment realities for for the Christian to be applied right now to our lives and our struggles. So everything that we learn here about our identities needs to become a constant thought for us, an affirmation, a reminder and celebration for every Christian. So, so what's our identity? That's the grammar lesson. So, so, so what then is the lesson itself? What are we told about our identity in verse 11? Notice now three things, and these three things are major for recovery from sexual sin and sexual mistreatment. We are washed, we are sanctified, and we are justified. Number one, we've been washed. Washed. That's the first thing we're told in verse 11 about our our new identity. The idea is that our sins have been washed away from us through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and in the resurrection. And they have been washed away once and for all. The idea of wash there brings to mind the, the Old Testament concepts of clean and unclean. Clean and unclean were central in the Old Testament of determining whether or not you could be uh, a part of the Israelite community and whether or not you could worship uh, with Israel. Where, where people were concerned and where our bodies were concerned, whether you were clean or unclean, had a lot to do with what you did with your bodies or what was going on with your body. So, for example, people with sores and discharges were unclean before God and unclean for worship. Uh, certain diseases and disabilities made you unclean uh, for worship. Eating the wrong kinds of animals or childbirth for a certain period of time made you unclean. Touching dead things, dead bodies, carcasses, made you unclean. And certainly sin made a person unclean and therefore unable to worship, and in some cases even remain uh, among the people of Israel. You think about the, the heavy guilt and shame that would hang over a person's head who was regarded as unclean. It would be a tremendous burden for the entire nation and the religious leaders to regard you that way. It would be a heavy, heavy burden and a heavy load to carry. So because of its focus on clean and unclean, the Old Testament system of worship included a variety of ways then of, of, of becoming clean again. Offerings could be made. Uh, Lepers had to be purified. Unclean clothing had to be washed or burned. Uh, The priests themselves had to practice these ceremonial washings before making offerings on behalf of the people. All that washing and all those uh, ways of becoming clean again were were symbolizing uh, moral or spiritual purity. They were symbolizing the kind of spiritual transformation that, that was really needed. They were symbols. They were not the real thing. They were pointing to that real cleaning that we needed. And that real cleaning comes through Christ's sacrifice on the cross, through his blood shed for us. So this is one of the ways the Old Testament is pointing forward to the coming of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ brings the cleaning. He brings the washing that really does take our sins away from us. So Titus chapter 3 verse 5 says, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Well, how did he save us? By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So Christian, when you were born again, you were also washed off. You're like a little baby who uh, is born in the birthing room and and was covered with uh, all of the tissue and blood and things from that that live birth. And the doctor uh, took the baby, examined the baby, made sure the baby was okay, and then immediately washed the baby. 
washing of all of that uncleanness and presented that that newborn uh, to mom and dad uh, fresh and clean. God does that in the gospel of Christ. We are born again through faith in Christ and we are washed of all of our filth and dirt and uncleanness once and for all. Christian, you bear your sins no more. Write that down. Get that in your heart. Know it. Repeat it. Recall it often. You bear your sins no more because you, beloved, have been washed. You don't carry your sins. They, they, don't, they don't make you dirty before God anymore. You are, you are not unclean. You've been cleansed, not by a symbolic ritual, but by the actual blood of the Son of God. So this means, Christian, the first thing that we have to do, the first way that we have to think about ourselves to the point that it is a, a, a central aspect, a self-conscious aspect of our identity, is we have to think of ourselves and we have to think washed. We were washed clean all the sin we have committed and we are washed clean of the shame and the guilt of the sin committed against us. And for those who have been sinned against sexually, the sins of others actually never made you dirty in God's sight. Those were not your sins. And so the guilt was not yours. And the shame that you feel uh, can feel is not it's not legitimate shame in the sense that you did something to deserve that or to to bring that on. You were not wrong, and so the feelings of uncleanness that you have sometimes you you want to identify as illegitimate feelings, and you want to answer those feelings with this fact that even if they were your sins, they have been washed. Christ has atoned for it. His blood has cleansed you. You too are a new creation, clean before God. This, this doesn't fix everything, but, but this is where our self-understanding has to start. If we're going to heal and make progress, then we have been washed. Sinner and sufferer, washed. But here's the second thing. Not only have we been washed, but we have also been sanctified. A washed person could become unclean again. But anybody who has been around children knows that. You, you wash them, get them clean, and they write off into the dirt or whatever. Anyone familiar with Israel's entire history in the Old Testament, you know that that's a history of bouncing between clean and unclean, clean and unclean, clean and unclean. So how's the Christian life different from that of a, a child who gets a bath and then goes right out into the dirt? Or how's the Christian life different from an ancient Israelite who performs a, a ritual sacrifice and is regarded as clean and then goes right out and is dirty again before God? Well, the Christian life is different because, number two, we are also sanctified. Sanctified means holy. This idea of sanctification means that we have been set apart as holy for God. God not only washed us, but he also put us away from the dirt and the filth. That's our identity. We are, we are set apart people. Now, when, when you wash dishes, for example, do you put the clean dishes back into the sink with the dirty dishes or back into the dishwasher with the, with the dirty dishes? No, you take the clean dishes, right, and, and you dry them off, and you set them apart somewhere else on the counter, away from the dirty dishes in the sink. Or you go ahead and you put them in the cabinet. You, you, you place them up apart, away from the dirty used dishes, because they are clean. When I was a boy, I had certain clothes that were designated play clothes and school clothes. My school clothes, I could only wear to school. They were sanctified. They were, they were set apart for that one purpose, so that, as, as Peter Noble might say, so that I would look like somebody when I was at school. I couldn't wear my, my jeans with the holes in the knees and all that good stuff for school. Uh, my mom was like, you ain't going out of the house looking like that, known by my name. 
my clothing was was meant to be set apart. There were clothes for ordinary use, playing outside, playing basketball, and there were clothes for particular purposes, going to school, going to church, and so on. So to be sanctified is to be set apart for one purpose. And you, Christian, beloved, have been set apart for one owner, that's God. Your body is meant for God, and God is meant for your body. And you have been set apart for his purpose alone. You are not play clothes to be run around in and to be used in the dirt of this life. And and you are not clean dishes mixed together with dirty dishes that have not been washed. God has put you on the shelf where sin and uncleanness cannot reach you and where you can only be used for his purposes. Now, it's at this point that you want to bring back into your thinking all of the theology of the body we've been considering in this series. What What does that theology tell us about our purpose? We are set apart ones for God and for God's purposes. And and some of the things that we have considered is this. We are set apart to reflect God's image and his likeness. We made it his image and likeness. We, We are set apart to express God's divine love by giving ourselves to serve others. We are, as male and female, set apart to to demonstrate God's creative power. We we are, as celibate people, to to point to the sufficiency of Christ for our satisfaction. And we are, as married persons, to, to point to that eternal consummation that will happen at the end of the age when Christ brings the kingdom in full. All of that theology is meant to give you the focus or the purpose for your sanctification. God has set you apart so that he might reveal things in you and through you and to you, even using your body. So we have been washed. Sins have been taken away, and we have been sanctified. We have been set apart from all that is not of God. And number three, it's the third aspect of our identity, we have been justified. It says there, you were justified. That, that means that we now have right standing with God. We, we're no longer unrighteous like we were in verse 9. We, we are now righteous. We are declared righteous by God, uh, not because of anything that we have done, but because of what Jesus has done for us and because of our faith in Jesus. Jesus has obeyed God perfectly for us, and so that righteousness is given to us through faith, and Jesus has died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. And so that too, his death gets uh, the, the benefit of that death becomes ours through faith in him. And he has been raised from the grave for our justification. So now we are righteous too because we are hidden in Christ, joined with him through faith. Because Jesus was obedient and we have faith in Jesus, now God considers us obedient by that same faith. Galatians chapter 2 verse 16 puts it nicely. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. The Bible teaches this over and over in the New Testament. We, it's not earned, it's given. We're not justified by works, that would be earning it. We're justified by faith. Through that faith, we receive the gift of salvation and eternal life. And we are receiving the gift of righteousness from God through Christ. So, beloved, since you are justified, just bring to mind just for a moment sexual sin, sexual transgression, sins in the body, sins against the body. Since we are justified, now, all of those sins means that God is no longer angry with us about those sins. Our relationship and fellowship with God is not broken because of sin. 
To be justified means that, that God looks us looks at us and says, we cool. We good. I'm not mad with you. You, you, don't, you don't owe me anything. God has looked at us in Christ and accepted us. We are reconciled to him and we have peace with God because of this justification, this righteousness, which is given to us through faith in Christ. If you've suffered from someone else's sexual sin, God is not mad at you because of that. You have not done something wrong that that, that brought that sin uh, to you or against you. It, it is not, you know, people's sin against you is not your fault. You are justified with God if you are if you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is your identity. And everything should be working from that identity, from that truth. If you had been a willing sexual sinner, but you have repented and placed your faith in Christ, you have turned away from sin. That's your old life. Now you have this new life of faith in Christ, and God is not mad at you either. Through Jesus Christ, you and God are good. You're square. You're reconciled. You're accepted. Now, I've been trying to suggest that that the path to recovery from sexual sin um, and the, the path to healing and victory over sexual sin um, sort of starts with our identity. It includes the kind of theology of the body that we were considering last week, and it includes the use of the means of grace, prayer and uh, fasting and the reading of the scripture and the fellowship of the saints, includes all of that, but it begins with getting our identity right. Because if we don't know who we are, and, and we don't know what God has done for us to make us who we are, then, then chances are we're going to be trying to achieve certain things that we can't actually achieve apart from God, and in fact that he's already done for us. So we'll be trying to do things that make us feel washed, when we're already washed. And, and we'll be trying to do things that will make us, make us feel holy and make us feel like we have a special sense of communion with, with God through our own efforts. So even things like your quiet time and your church attendance and your singing, those become so many things that we are using as a kind of witchcraft to, to feel close to God. You're already sanctified. Those become legalisms because we have forgotten that we are justified. And so we're trying to do those things to feel righteous when, when we're already declared to be righteous. So it starts with getting the identity correct. And this, is, this begins to help us with recovery from sexual sin. So now let me give you five quick applications to end the sermon. Now, now, these are not applications. These are not, I'm not taking this text that, that gives us facts about ourselves and now I'm about to give you a bunch of, you know, go out and do stuff. Listen, I'm, I'm convinced that a lot of the truth of the Bible never really changes our ethos because we hear that truth and really rather than digest it and sit with it and meditate on it and let it become a part of us, we're very quickly asking the question, well, how does this look and what do I do and how do I put this into practice? Stop. Settle down. Sink into the truth. Meditate on it. Regurgitate it. Chew the cud until it actually becomes a part of you. So the applications I want to give us right now are not applications that are about go out and do these seven things and then you'll have this result. It's not how the faith works, really. The application is about sitting in the truth until the truth is sitting in us. It's about drinking this in more fully until it begins to shape our identity. So five quick things. Number one, preach to yourself the truth about your identity. Preach to yourself the truth about your identity. This morning I woke up and uh, I, it was raining outside. I was feeling like I wanted to sleep in. I was kind of struggling really uh, on the struggle bus this morning, but I knew I had to film, and so my mind uh, turned to thoughts about the sermon, and this morning I just 
began by the Spirit's prompting to sort of preach to myself, you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified. And I lay there in the bed reminding myself of that, and it's like a whole new life came over me. And I, I just was awakened in a fresh way that this is what God has done for you, Thabiti, and this is who you are, Thabiti the wash, Thabiti the sanctify, Thabiti the justify. So, so preach this truth to yourself and keep pushing it into yourself until it begins to shape how we think about ourselves. Number two, study the scriptures regularly, taking note of what it says about your identity. Study the scriptures regularly, taking note about what it says, uh, of what it says about your identity. Again, much of our Bible study is, is American pragmatic Bible study. We are looking into the Bible to find something that, quote, works. And then we want to get that thing that's supposed to work and then go out and do some stuff um, and, and change some things so that our lives are, are what we want them to be. But that's, that's not biblical Christianity. That's American pragmatism. So, so when we come to the scriptures, the first thing we should look for are the indicatives, are the facts, are the statements of truth about ourselves. And we need to breathe that in and take that in and meditate on that before we get to the imperatives. Because the things that we're called to do, we do them not to become certain persons, we do them because we are certain kinds of people. But few of us really remember the facts about ourselves as the Bible teaches them. And there are way more things than the three things that we have listed here. So as you read your Bible, take special note of the facts the Bible gives you about who you are in Christ, about your identity now that you are a Christian. Meditate on those things. Write those things. Write your own biography using the Bible's statement of facts about you. Number three, surround yourself with people who reinforce your identity in Christ. Surround yourself with people who reinforce your identity in Christ. Uh, our, our men's small group is reading a little book by J.C. Ryle called Thoughts for Young Men. It's a wonderful exhortation uh, where Ryle is concerned about the fact that young men um, seem um, indifferent to religion, indifferent to Christ. And, and, it's, and it's just full of practical um, lessons for, for young men. And, one of the things that he said in the last uh, session we had, he was thinking about friendship, and he basically made this argument that, that if you're a Christian, you should not have very close friends who themselves are not Christians because either they are stronger in the world and will drag you into the world, or you're stronger in Christ and will drag them in, in, into Christ. But the reality is most folks who are not saved are stronger in the world than we are in Christ. And so the net effect is they dull our hearts and our minds to the things of Christ. And he's saying in your inner circle, you want friends who are, who are genuinely Christians who are encouraging you in the kinds of truths that we've been talking about today, who are reminding you of your identity in Christ. So surround yourself with people who remind you that you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. A fourth thing, if you have been converted the way uh, 1 Corinthians 6 is describing, then you are likely feeling a tension between the old identity and the remembrance of those things and the new identity and who you have become. So what we want to do is learn to interpret the tension between the old and the new as evidence of a changed life. Don't be discouraged by the tension. The tension is only there because you have been changed. When you were the old person, you didn't feel the tension. You, you had deceived yourself into thinking that that old way of life was just perfectly fine. But now Christ has made you new. He's washed you, sanctified you, justified you. He's given you new desires. And the old man is still over there lurking, trying to get your attention. We're like people who have come out of freezing temperatures outside into a warm house. And for a while, we feel both the cold from outside and the heat on the inside. Now, here's the thing. If you stay in the house, the heat will displace the cold. You will warm up and you will, you will, you will in that sense, burn. So it is with Christ. If you come out from the old man and stay in Christ, the heat of Christ will warm you up and thaw you out. And that tension 
will get weaker as you are drawn more and more to Christ. But don't let the tension tempt you to think that you're broken. It's one of the evidences that you're new. Interpret the tension theologically. You're a new creature. And then sort of press into the newness. Number five and finally. Therefore then, point yourself toward the realities of the new identity and travel in that direction however you can. Now, your growth and my growth in this identity, in sanctification, our growth in healing from our past sexual sins and and brokenness, um, we need a long view on that. That's not going to happen tomorrow. I mean, God can do that, but it's not likely. It's more likely that we're going to have to make a road trip toward glory. So the thing that's really important is not how fast we get to the destination or even how straight the path is. We're going to sometimes get off the path, get misdirected, things of that sort. Uh, The thing that's important is that we keep the car pointed toward the destination. It's like taking a road trip from D.C. to L.A., right? We just need to keep traveling west, and and we're going to hit California. We're going to hit the western coast. Uh, But if we're in the car and the car is pointed toward Delaware, we're going the wrong way. So get in the car, start the trip. You may sit in D.C. traffic for hours and only travel five miles. But then the traffic may clear, and you can travel 75 miles an hour, and you can make good progress. And sometimes you you might get a flat tire or some other kind of thing that that hinders the trip. But, But stay in the car, keep pointing west, keep pointing toward Christ in the kingdom of God. And here's the thing. Everyone traveling that path reaches the destination. Nobody traveling the path toward the kingdom of heaven through Christ ever fails to make it. However slow we travel, however fast we travel, however circuitous our route, we're all going to make it because Christ has claimed us and made us his own. And that's who we are. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for what you have done for us in Jesus Christ, our Savior. And we pray that you would, Lord, take those things that you have done, press them deep into our soul until they become the reflexive and deep identity of each and every one of us. Do this, O Lord, we pray for your glory. In Jesus' name.